1: You're listening to episode 240 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief. TV Critic. How's it going, Chief?
2: It goes okay. Getting my menorah and my candles all in a row for the start of Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah to those who observe.
1: And happy Hanukkah to you as well, my friend.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Definitely, this is a podcast in which we are both celebrating and being mournful or mourning. Kind of a mix of emotions on this particular podcast.
1: Yeah, and it also happens to be TV's top five turns five. In this episode, this is the fifth birthday of our dear podcast, Mark.
2: Indeed, that was part of what I was figuring we were celebrating. In addition to Hanukkah, there's very little actual Hanukkah content on this podcast, whereas there is some fifth in. (laughs) (laughs) It is true. Yes, I've given a token acknowledgement to Hanukkah and now we can move on. So yes, absolutely. Very much like Hallmark. Uh, Yes, as you say, we had our first podcast episode on December 7th. Uh, 2018 somebody happened to mention this on elon musk's white supremacist social media platform so thank you for letting us know otherwise we would probably not have necessarily remembered that time passed in any particular notable linear way
1: yeah i went back and um looking at our very first episode and, and our five topics were the golden globe nominations award show hosts friends extending its run on netflix News of the week, which we now know is headlines, and of course Critics Corner. So as much as things change, some things well stay the same.
2: Looking at the outline is one thing. I assume you did not have the intestinal fortitude to go back and actually re-listen to the first podcast.
1: Oh no 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 I I, I, I like myself <laughs> too much to do that.
2: <laughs> I,
1: I wasn't gonna I was definitely not gonna
2: recommend it, but somebody could, or not. No, no
1: I, I I was still very scared. And you know, even even episode one, we had already done I think we had done two pilots.
2: Right. We've done two unaired pilots, as we call them. So one in which Amanda Walsh played Penny and then we uh, finally got things <laughs> right when we had Kaylee Cuoco play Penny and that was, it turned out, all we needed for this podcast to run for five years.
1: You know, I got to say this podcast and you in particular, Dan, have gotten me through the pandemic, the strikes and just so much more. It's, it's been incredible to have this kind of stability and I'm extremely grateful to you, Dan, and to our producers, past and present, and to THR for, well, allowing us to keep doing this.
2: For sure. I definitely, it is always a pleasure and it's a thing I look forward to every week chatting with you. And yes, as you say, thank you to all of our producers past and present and thank you to all of the friends of the five who have been our guests over the years. We sort of put our heads together and tried to figure out who would be a good guest for a fifth anniversary podcast. And the answer was Mike Royce, who was our first non-THR guest on the podcast. And so... Basically, to to preview the rest of the podcast, we had Mike Royce on. He was very nice and chatted with us about a bunch of things. Five years of shifting entertainment trends, uh, Hollywood after the strike, all of that. Mike is one of our favorite people.
1: His show got canceled, his show got uncanceled, and then his show got hit by COVID.
2: Exactly. So he, he was, as always, gracious and funny and fun to chat with, and then... Unfortunately, on Wednesday morning, the news broke that Norman Lear, truly one of the absolute titans of of the industry, had passed away at 101, which is a pretty damn good run and so having had (laughs) mike royce on the podcast to record a segment on tuesday we had mike royce back on the podcast on thursday to talk about working with norman lear on one day at a time and all of that so this is a double mike royce podcast that is also why if you listen to the podcast linearly you will hear the third segment and you will hear that mike royce does not talk about norman lear and then he does extensively so uh We were very glad to have him back for that because he did a fantastic job of paying tribute to a man who he obviously respects as a person in the industry and obviously cares for as a friend and colleague. Really and truly. Big thanks to Mike Royce for this week's podcast.
1: Yes, and his state of the industry conversation is really insightful and he... uh, exceeded the whatever expectations that we had for that segment. So, if you're a fan of the 5, this is one of our my favorite interviews. So, in two parts.
2: Yes, in in in, in two parts, but makes for a sort of Somewhat strange podcast. Uh, you, you have to imagine that he's wearing two different outfits in that segment, which is part of why we do not do this as a video podcast, because it would be truly, well, it would be distressing. No one no one wants to see that. No,
1: you, you'll also hear me devolve in, from being healthy to being sick during this show. So <laughs> there's that, too.
2: Well, but that's going to be a strange roller coaster because you're sick now. Yeah. You're not going to have been sick in the third segment. You'll be sick in the fourth segment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, just it's Leslie's, not COVID. Are you positive?
1: No, but I know it's not COVID. Okay,
2: that's fine. Everyone everyone just take care of themselves and it's the holiday season and try to remain healthy, everybody. That's the bottom line of TV's top five podcast is try to remain healthy.
1: And because there's no great segue from that, let's just kick off where we usually do with headlines.
0: Number one.
1: HBO has extended John Oliver's Last Week Tonight for 3 additional seasons, taking the show through its 13th season in 2026. 2026, Dan?
2: Well, I mean that's as as always when anyone does anything like this or a baseball player signs an 8 to 10 year contract or whatever, I applaud the optimism. No, honestly I'm a tiny bit surprised that he isn't ready to move on. It isn't that the show is not still fresh and funny and excellent it is and having it back since the strike ended has been a real relief on the other hand it feels like he's been doing this for a long time and that he might have other things he wants to do 13 years is a pretty good run for a topical comedy show otherwise you end up becoming bill maher i assume that john oliver will avoid that continuing along with positive television-based news apple has renewed the sci-fi drama foundation for a third season
1: over at Amazon, Tracy Oliver comedy Harlem, as well as the procedural Reacher have both been renewed for third seasons at the streamer, which has also given a formal series order to a reboot of cruel intentions.
2: That reminds me that I need to watch my screeners of Reacher season two. I guess I'll talk about that on next week's podcast.
1: And it reminds me of how many tries it, it took to get cruel intentions over the finish line. I think a couple in an NBC. It's just, this title is just proven hard to, to get right.
2: And then of course the legendary Fox Cruel Intentions sequel, prequel TV series Manchester Prep, which of course became Cruel Intentions two anyway everyone wants to keep making cruel intentions tv shows and there was a dangerous liaisons tv show that was on stars just last year so i was gonna say hey why not just adapt dangerous liaisons but nope Cruel intentions it is continuing with more renewals netflix has given it ridiculously misunderstood squid game reality cha- competition series The challenge a second season renewal of once again hilarious hijinks that have nothing to do with class or economic desperation so yay enjoy
1: on the cancellation front Apple has axed the uh, animated musical comedy Central Park after a 3 season run I was kind of surprised by this one but they didn't own it we had Lauren Bouchard on in episode 72 back in May 2020 I remember recording that one at TCA well before the pandemic hit and it was just a lot of fun talking to him Dan about the show
2: Oh he was a that was a terrific interview he was really great he was in fine form and Central Park was a good show I I you know a little bit sad about that it's probably not a show that has been all that buzzy for apple sort of ownership issues aside but it was a show that had a lot of talented people doing a lot of talented things little disappointing speaking of talented people um i guess so much Ryan Murphy is reteaming with American Horror Story star Kim Kardashian for a legal drama series for Hulu. Let me know what part of that sentence makes sense to you when you get to the logical part.
1: Because she's a lawyer.
2: Uh, Well, I guess she's whatever she is. Uh, she, She definitely has an interest in law. I believe she never actually passed the... I think she was trying to do that that suits thing where she was like, no law school, I'm just going to take the bar thing, and then I don't know what happened with that. Anyway, the show will apparently be about a divorce lawyer in Los Angeles and will be one of Murphy's first new projects following his return to Disney. Huzzah.
1: And wrapping up headlines with some executive news, Tracy Underwood has been promoted to president of ABC Signature. She replaces Johnny Davis in the role atop the Disney studio. And, And a reminder, Carrie Burke oversees Disney's other major studio Twentieth Television. There you go. I
2: have absolutely nothing to say about that particular piece of news, but good well, she's for a rising star.
1: She helped. You know, a- ABC Signature used to be known as ABC Studios, and Signature was a division within it that was headed up by Underwood originally, with the function of expanding the studio's reach into cable and streaming. It tells you how long she's been with Disney because now Signature was folded into what was ABC Studios, but then they rebranded it as. ABC Signature instead of ABC Signature Studios. Now it's basically Tracy Underwood controlling a bigger studio. So she came up under Johnny Davis. Now you see her getting to replace him after his departure time. a months ago.
0: Number two.
1: Up next, it's official. The Screen Actors Guild membership has voted to ratify its new three-year contract. Dan, this is hopefully going to be the last that we talk of labor on the show and any kind of serious topic here, but uh, it's over. <laughs> the actor strike is over. So 78.33% of SAG's voting membership voted to approve the deal, while nearly 22% voted no. The turnout was about 38.15% of the guild's 160,000 members. It, who participated in the vote. The new agreement is retroactive to June 9th and runs until June 30th, 2026.
2: I've seen some spin going both ways on the 38.15% turnout. Some people seem to be disappointed by that as turnout. Other people pointed out that other deal ratification votes from SAG had been with smaller percentages. Those, however, were not coming after lengthy labor stoppages. So, And similarly, I've seen comparable spin regarding whether 22% of people voting against the deal constitutes a large number or a very small number. It is a significantly higher number of people than voted against the WGA deal, but still seventy eight point three three percent is a very decisive yes vote, so yeah, so break break down some of the big aspects of this that
1: the new three year contract it's valued at north of one billion dollars one Billion dollars is my awesome powers. Uh, That's more than three times the value of SAG's 2020 deal. As we previously noted, the pact includes wage increases and establishes new guardrails on the use of AI and includes rules for virtual interviews and auditions, as well as self-tapes. You know, Dan, there was a lot of concern that the membership would not ratify the deal in the weeks leading up to the voting deadline, as a lot of high-profile members, including Justine Bateman, former TV's Top 5 guest, Justin Bateman felt the protections against the use of AI were insufficient so obviously that went out the window and uh, now just taking a look at what's coming up next on the labor front you've got IATSE the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees whose contract expires July 31st 2024 that's the same date that the basic crafts contract covering the Teamsters expire. Many in the industry are worried that IATSE and the Teamsters will not be able to go out on strike after enduring work stoppages in 2020 because of the pandemic. And of course, this year from the writer's strike and the actor's strike. That's a lot of work stoppage for some of our industry's lowest paid professionals. So yeah, all eyes are on them. And we've got, uh yeah, expect to see some movement there. Well, In the middle of next year.
2: And that is why, regardless of what you said when we started this segment about the fact that you were hopeful that this was the last we were going to be talking about labor unrest for a while, it might be the last we're talking about labor unrest for a couple months, but definitely not the last we're talking about labor unrest in the near future. Definitely sounds as if that will be a major major topic of conversation and and we'll see. I, you know, there was a lot of initial enthusiasm when, when the SAG deal was announced. There were some reservations, which seemed mostly to be based around concerns about AI. And, you know, here's here's your sense of how many people were willing enough willing to be concerned enough about those AI aspects of the deal to vote no, versus people who are like, we have to go back to work and Hopefully the AI situation will be adjustable on the fly, which is what the AMPTP always wanted in the first place, which was, let's, let's respond to this as we go. So we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully none of the worst case scenarios that people were concerned about will, will come to pass. But as it stands, this was absolutely the thing that dominated the headlines in 2023, the two strikes. And as you say, they are now both done. And so back to business.
0: Number three.
1: Up third this week, since we're celebrating our fifth anniversary, we thought it would be a fun thing to touch base about the state of the industry when we launched the podcast five years ago versus where the industry is now with one of our favorite and most frequent guests.
2: Mike Royce first joined us all the way back in March of 2019 to discuss efforts to save Netflix's One Day at a Time. He returned three months later when Pop ordered a fourth season of the beloved comedy, and then stopped by nearly a year later in episode 72 to talk about the streaming debut of Man of a Certain Age. And then he returned when One Day at a Time was finally cancelled in its second incarnation. That time he was joined by co-creator Gloria Calderon-Kellett. That was a really good interview. I believe Everybody Cried. Royce's credits also include Everybody Loves Raymond and Enlisted, and he has been developing a sequel to the former ABC comedy Who's the Boss since before the strike. Welcome back to the podcast, Mike. We're sorry we do not have a five-timers robe for you like they would on SNL, but you are truly a BFF of the five. Thanks for joining us.
3: Wow, that's, I feel a metaphorical robe around me now. Thank you. Swaddled in the
2: podcast warmth, I believe, is how I would describe (laughs) it. So, 2023 has obviously
3: been a difficult
2: year for the industry. What does it feel like to be back at work and what are you currently working on?
3: It feels amazing to be back at work. I have been very fortunate to be thrown right away into some work. I've gone through the last bunch of years doing some development and I haven't been in a lot of rooms and I'm currently in a room. I'm not sure if I can really say what I'm doing, but I can give a bit of a vague overview. I'm in a writer's room for at least a few weeks and it's in person and I love everybody in the world because of it. I love everybody in the room. I love being part of it. We have an amazing showrunner. It's like, it's all such a reminder. I've been around for a while now. And so I know that it's someday show business is going to kick me out at some Right. But this has been a good reminder at the end of each of these days that, like, not today, not happening today, like, reinvigorated my love for doing what we do, which is because there's been such a long time of not doing that. I really have got a reappreciation of it. I also sold a pitch with someone, and I can't talk about it, but that was also very fortunate. Somebody called my experience right now a unicorn because there is such like sludgy non-stuff happening, and I've been able to make a couple of things happen, so I just feel
2: truly fortunate. Is this an actual God's honest in-person writer's room that you're in?
3: Yeah. Like none of, none of this Zoom stuff? Yeah, with like menus and lunch. And- <laughs>
1: <laughs> now you what know if- it's a real writer's room because you're talking about lunch.
2: <laughs> well, what was day one? Back like what did the first day
3: of school feel like these were people who had been in a room at least some of them had been in a room previous to the strike and they were picking off where they left off so i'm new to the group
1: so you joined a pre-existing mini room yeah yeah, development room as they're called now i'm not getting right
3: i'm i i don't want to characterize the room because to be honest i don't know one of the i had very little opportunity to not be the showrunner over my last 15 years it's happened a few times where i consult and this is one of those times and it's glorious to leave at the end of the day and go that person has to worry about all the bullshit, not me. (laughs) So I don't know what is happening in terms of what the room is or whatever. I don't know. I felt like a kid again, because it's like a lot of stuff that I hadn't experienced in a while was happening again. Just getting to know funny, talented people, bullshitting around in the room, eating lunch and realizing, are we all going to stay together for lunch also? We should probably (laughs) separate for a few minutes, and then we should come back. Just that group, you know, it took me a long time to get used to writing in a group when I first got into writing, because I was on Everybody Loves Raymond. I had been a stand-up comic for a long time, and I was used to doing everything by myself, and it was one of the best rooms, but, you know, you're in there, and instead of saying a joke and everyone laughing, which is what I was used to because of the audience, you say a pitch, and then a bunch of people stare at you, and you're not even sure, was that good, not bad? I can't tell like what's happening and it's all part of the group. And I wasn't sure I was going to like it. There's just nothing like it. Not that every writer's room and every, you know, it, it's still going to work. You're still working. You don't want to be in there 24 hours a day, but boy, there's just nothing that can replace being part of a group of people all working towards the same goal who are funny and like are building on each other's ideas and trying to make this thing into something great, you know, and these are people who are like you.
1: Speaking of your people, you were out on the Fox picket line almost daily. Have you done the math about how many miles you walked during that nearly 150 day strike?
3: Yeah. I mean, my phone obviously has done the math. I know the phone doesn't have emotions or at least not yet. (laughs) I know we're getting there, but the message came up very disappointed. New steps pattern you are way down over the last four weeks. And I'm like, I guess Apple wants me to be on strike. I'm not sure what that message...
1: I mean, they are an AMPTP member, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, they're they not real union friendly. So I was surprised. But if that's what they want,
1: you know. You talked about selling some development right now. And it is a very a trying time right now for the industry as a lot of people are trying to get back to work. But there's just not a lot of opportunity because obviously even before the strike, this industry-wide contraction has begun. The peak TV bubble has burst. But before the strike, you were developing a Who's the Boss sequel with the original cast attached for Amazon's freebie. Have you heard anything about the status of that?
3: I have heard that we're going to hear. So, you know, that's been the case for a while. And I'm assuming after the new year at this point, you know, that we'll learn the fate of that. But everything is handed in. So we're just waiting for a decision. You know, this is what happened.
1: Did you turn this in before the strike started? We
3: did. We turned in a pilot and a second episode and a Bible for a show that you can say in a sentence. <laughs> but this is what, you know, this is what you.
1: Who's the boss sequel with Tony Danza and Alyssa Milano? It's right there
3: like that yeah but this is what happens
1: it's odd that they had 158 days to kind of figure it out do you know what's causing this delay
3: leslie these are your words i mean i'm not gonna sit here and right you know disparage my future employer hopefully
1: right knock on wood. we love freebie <laughs> here on on tv's top five we're big fans of um oh god now i can't remember the names of the show primo <laughs> uh, and high school yeah. yeah both excellent
3: yeah and jury duty
1: uh, People love them from <laughs> Jury
3: Duty. What? What can I say? Uh, adore Jury Duty. Obviously, paid off for that guy. Oh apparently huh? big
1: overall deal yeah yeah <laughs> yeah.
3: i'm gonna let myself be taken advantage of by a reality show at some point <laughs> not that that's a reality i know that's not a reality show
1: well normally this would be the time in the year in which kind of the industry is slowing down for the holidays right everything all the agencies are closed all the studios everything shuts down for christmas and new year's but do you feel a different sense of urgency now as the calendar turns into december i mean does it feel like all of these places that the whether it's the place that you're currently employed or the where you sold the pitch or even even Amazon freebie. Does it feel like a sense of urgency now?
3: Well, I think it's situational for sure. Like I think this pilot is for a broadcast network. And I think we're going to be working very quickly to get back on some semblance of their pilot schedule, which would normally be turning in a script in a couple of weeks, which is obviously not going to happen. But there's time to be able to get a script approved and then shoot a pilot in whatever April. And so I think that'll be a bit of a quick process. But on the other hand, I think for most people, including me, because I Was lucky enough to sell this pitch with someone, but I have three or four other things that I'm just like, what the hell's going on? You know, and that is the default for everybody. The urgency is more like, what the hell's going on? (laughs) What the hell is going on? There's the we are in the traditional period where nothing happens when in a normal year, but because nothing has happened because of two strikes, I think people are very confused. Rightly so about like, so are we working during the holiday? Like, are people moving quickly to try and get back on track? And I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question. It's confounding. And if we're in a broadcast world or even a cable world, you could kind of point to a certain schedule that they need to get back on. But the streamers don't have no schedules. It's all super inscrutable. And until something changes, it remains inscrutable. I think you know most people are just like, I guess after the holidays, we'll find out. But yeah, it's frustrating.
1: Yeah, one of the things that we're hearing is people are expecting this to be a very busy time. Like writers coming out of the strike, like going, okay, well, we've got 158 days worth of creativity Here's a bunch of pitches. We've heard execs clear their schedules, et cetera. But nothing's happening. No one's buying. Like yesterday, we're recording this on Tuesday morning, and Mondays usually are incredibly busy with breaking news. And it was crickets. It's crazy. Like, nothing's happening.
3: Yeah. For me, it's been a weird combination of, oh, some stuff is going on. But I know the general tenor of show business right now is nobody knows what's happening. And obviously, the last three or four years has been just sort of unprecedented it's just one punch in the face after the other the streaming services mostly started right before or just in the beginning of the pandemic and so your entire mission statement gets confused whatever their mission statement was it's like now we have this whole other world to operate in. So that lasted a couple of years and then just getting back on the feet and then the strikes happened, which of course I want to point out did not have to happen if they had just made the deal that they made in the beginning instead of waiting five, six months to do it. And so I guess I have real hope that there'll just be some out of the gate in January. Okay, we have, you know, Some open field running for once in the last few years. And that's, of course, only if the companies don't get stupid and fuck around with IATSE and the Teamsters. That's bleak.
1: Thanks for it. Don't don't fuck around and find out because you saw what happened when two other guilds did.
3: Yeah. I think there's probably some executives who are thinking, well, been through all these strikes. They need their shit. Give them their shit and there won't be a strike. End of story.
2: Yeah. You talked a bit about returning to a room, returning to work, how quickly do the creative juices get flowing? Or did you feel like the tweeting and the conversation and all of that on the picket lines was still somewhat a creative juice that you had going? You mean in the writer's room? Well, just getting back to work, the process of finding the funny again.
3: I see. I went through a solid week, a little bit longer, but like a definite week of existential career crisis when the strike ended, to get my brain back into working mode was I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. Some people went back to their job, like they went back to a register. I did not do that. This register that I'm in didn't start till a few weeks ago. So it didn't start right after the strike or anything like that. And waiting on some development, there was things that I wasn't allowed to work on that I could go back to work on. For me, with a little bit of exception, did not do work during the strike. I mean, we were allowed to work on anything as long as it's not for a company, right? So you could write your spec and go out and have it ready if you want to at the end. But my brain was so f- focused on what we were doing. Kevin Beagle and I are trying to work on something together. We have a couple of things that we're trying to get going. Uh, Enlisted
1: reboot.
3: Sure. I mean, speak it into existence. with Enlisted, you know, reboot. Enlisted we, reboot. We certainly try. Enlisted. We just keep shouting at each other on a Zoom. Enlisted reboot. So we had some Zooms and that was fun. Every once in a while, it would kind of just return to creativity for a couple hours and that was great. But it's very hard to fight against someone and then the day after just be like, now we're friends and we're working together. And so I think my brain had to deal with that for a week. And I really, I was kind of depressed, just didn't know what to do. And, you know, also you've formed this big community of people that you're not going to see again because you only see them, unfortunately, when there's this disaster of a labor action happening. The good news is some of us have actually just said, fuck it, we're going to get together anyway. So uh, we've met at Fox and we walk around like we did it once. We're going to do it again. We walk around Chevy at Hills. We don't walk around Fox, but but, I mean a group of 40, 50 people who are, you know, sort of Fox regulars were like, can't we just take walks together? So we did that once already and we're going to, I think, try to keep it going.
1: It is beautiful over there. I I grew up playing baseball over there. Gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: I like the idea that neighbors were peeking out of their
3: windows going, oh, God, the writers are at it again as you march by the house. We were joking like Fox got to be shit in their pants right now looking out like, no, no, it's over. What happened? (laughs)
1: You talked a little bit about being able to sell a script right now and how that's not actually something that's happening for everyone. But can you talk anything about who that's with? Is that someone that you were close to before the strike or are there more collaborations that are happening as a result of the strike? That's one thing that I was curious about because with a group of people, as you said, for four or five hours a day, every day for six months, I would imagine it becomes like, let's do something together. Let's kick around ideas or something naturally comes up.
3: For sure. I I think I can say it's with Gloria, Gloria Calderon-Kellett. I won't say where it is or what it is or anything about because the deal's not done yet. But because we were on deals at separate places over the last three years, we couldn't work together just contractually. We didn't have anything that was coming together. She was at
1: Amazon or is at Amazon and you were at Sony. And I think- uh, Yes.
3: Through the magic of force majeure, I am not at Sony anymore. (laughs) No, my deal was running out anyway. It was the end. I had like one more month left before the strike. So my contract was up. With Sony, And that was, you know, the same thing with Kevin. I wasn't really working with Kevin because I was on a deal at Sony. So, so yeah, I mean, it came together with Gory and I so quickly. It was a real like renewal of faith of like just we should do something together again. We haven't been able to do it. And we get together and we talk for a few hours and we already have, you know, an idea came up. I'm like, that sounds great. And like, we, should we get our agents on the phone? Like, maybe we can get in a room with this. And they're like, all right, let's try. And then, you know, lo and behold, a bunch of places wanted to hear the pitch. And we got it together in a couple of weeks because we work fast and very well together and then we had a great result and it just it was like oh this is yes thank you you know working with someone that i love and like just being able to do this again it really renewed my spirit a lot
1: is it an original idea or a well-known title there's no ip attached
3: this is the ip yeah glory was here i'd yeah, be pointing yeah. to her head too but she's not. yeah <laughs>
1: So when we first had you on the podcast in spring of 2019, One Day at a Time was caught in this ownership buzzsaw because at the time, Netflix wanted to own all of its originals. Obviously, they were still licensing shows, but in terms of original content, they were really pushing for an ownership business. So if you go to Netflix today and you look at their top 10 list, and you're going to see a bunch of licensed titles. Young Sheldon, uh, which is a Warner Brothers show, alongside a bunch of HBO stuff. Did you have questions at the time, like in the 20? 2019 about Netflix's ownership strategy and how does that strategy feel to you now five years later? I don't
3: really know much about their strategy. I do know that it's, you know, if you're Pitching something from an outside studio, which Sony was, to Netflix, which is distributor, there's always a higher bar to climb. They're going to make a deal with a studio for something that they could make themselves. Then you have to give them something that they can't make themselves, which in our case, One Day at a Time, was based on a Norman Lear show. And Sony owns all of the Norman Lear properties. And I think we got canceled based on their normal three seasons and out you know it needs to be some number that nobody will ever find out to continue into a fourth season so i mean it was disappointing because our numbers were going up every season which i i think i've said 4 million times, so I apologize. But, you know, whatever, their business is their business. It does seem like starting with them, everyone is rethinking that business because it's, as has been written about exhaustively, going after new subscribers is one thing, and that requires a certain kind of model where you're throwing shows at everybody all the time to hope to attract people. And now it's shifted over to cost cutting, which No one knows what that means other than bad news for creators, but also advertising and trying to make money off of your subscribers as opposed to, you know, necessarily getting more subscribers. So how that's going to manifest itself, nobody seems to know, but I do think it will, I'm optimistic that it's going to lead to a little bit of a, you know, I don't want to say back to normalcy, but like not have to just do two or three seasons of a show. You know, If you if you have a show that is selling ads, they just want more of that show. And so maybe you'll get to do more seasons that have 10, 13, 22 episodes of a show if they're making a lot of money in advertising. It seems like that's the direction that at least part of that business is going in. So we'll see.
2: We also had you on the pod back when Men of a Certain Age finally made its streaming debut on Max. And I did check and remarkably it still appears to be there knock on wood but it sort of is quote unquote funny that that one never knows and just a couple of weeks ago I know Kevin was tweeting extensively about enlisted leaving Hulu. Is that the kind of thing where you guys knew it was happening or coming or where someone just kind of mentioned to you oh by the way you know that this is leaving?
3: Literally Joe Adelian direct messaged me and was like hey did you know it's leaving? I just found out and I had no idea and it was like happening the next day. So I mean to be fair Somebody gave us the heads up It was going to be on there Also like Oh I think tomorrow it's on Like it was very quick The moral of the story is They're not going to tell The creators of the, I, I'm not Kevin Beagle's the creator of the show But they're not going to tell Anybody It just appears Or d- disappears with Without them ever contacting you, maybe Which is they do insane. if it's like a big show, but
1: right? Don't you get you get paid for when it shows up on a new streaming service, right?
3: Well, yeah, I mean something like Enlisted, right? One season and out, it's going to be. Yeah. I mean, talk about Hollywood accounting. You know, you don't even have to like suspect them of bad accounting. You go, that probably didn't make Fox a lot of money. Because it was one season and that's the way deficit financing works back in 2013. So whatever points I have in enlisted, like that would have to be freaks and geeks or so, you know, some, some, I don't even know. And that's probably, I mean, l- listen, the Simpsons still doesn't make money, right? So I'm assuming there's just, there's no actual money. There are residuals. So that's good, you know, residuals. But the same thing with men of a certain age, like, uh, you know, every once in a while, I'm like, are we making money over there? And they're like, yeah, you're never going to make the amount of money that they will say you lost making the show. How true that is, nobody knows, but it's easier to take on faith when you do a one or two season show. When your bones or something like that, it's a little harder to be like, oh, we didn't make money for 12 years. That seems weird.
1: Yeah. On a, on a title that was sold and streaming and all over the world. Yeah. I was going to say,
2: it's easy to tell people you're not making money. Then someone actually, you know, go makes you go to court and suddenly discovery documents suggest maybe that's a little bit harder.
3: Yeah. Discovery documents and uh, executives' houses. Those are the the evidence that maybe somebody's making some money.
2: With the show like Enlisted, though, I mean, honestly, I was amazed that it was on Hulu for as long as it was, because as you say, it was a one season show. And if you count the number of one season shows that have truly just vanished entirely, it's frankly tragic. And a lot of people love those one season shows you know have the deep sort of reservoirs of affection for them when a show like this goes off the air who's supposed to have conversations about it finding a new home or is this just another thing where you have to sit back and hope that maybe someday someday that joe adalian will send you an email saying <laughs> oh by the way you guys are on Tubi or something
3: yeah i think it works a bunch of different ways because i you know like one day at a time right we have four seasons there's three that are netflix and then we have this fourth season that was on pop that got caught short because of all the corporate stuff and also the pandemic but there's seven episodes i would love them all to be in the same place right so we're in conversations with sony about that but when i say that it's like the last time we talked about that was before the strike and i'd like to talk to them again again about it but it's just not ever going to rise to the level of someone's priority
1: right but sony could sell that to netflix and actually make some money
3: are you listening netflix listen to leslie
1: these companies <laughs> need to make money, especially Sony, which is an independent studio that doesn't have a streaming platform of its own.
3: Right. It's frustrating in terms of sometimes you're like, well, this would just make sense. But first of all, it doesn't always make sense the way you think it makes sense. And then somebody has to, you know, for every one of my one season shows, there's, I mean, multiply it by whatever, thousands and trying to calculate the value and who wants it and who doesn't. I think though, so one day at a time is a separate issue because it was, you know, listen, we have 46 episodes. That's not a, that's a pretty good library these days, you know? (laughs) These days, yeah. Yeah, it's not a, you know, necessarily TBS syndication going to go on forever type of thing, but it's it would live well on a streaming service. I mean, it's most of it's on Netflix still for a couple more years, at least. Anyway, I hope someday all those episodes are together somewhere. But then when you think about Enlisted and these one season shows, you know, we're in a little bit of a world where it's it's nice to just it's still on somewhere. That wouldn't be true 15 years ago. You would have to have the recordings on a VHS tape. You saved it and nobody knows about this cult hit that you have. And maybe the DVD comes out on you know Shout Factory or something. Luckily, there's a market for more programming now. And in some cases, it's cheap programming. So I hope that enough people are watching men of a certain age to keep whatever measly residuals they have to pay to keep it on there. Because trust me, it's not a lot. And the same thing with Enlisted. I think Enlisted could find another home because because there's always people who will watch these days. There's people who will pop on something. It's like, oh, I, I heard about that. I, or I just, I like that guy or let's see what this is. And then they jump into it and find out it's something that's actually good, even though it only lasted one season. So I think proliferation of many different streaming services with many different mission statements is now just going to help. Also, now that they have started licensing again, as opposed to hoarding everything themselves, hopefully we'll open up opportunities for all my canceled shows.
1: Yeah. As we talk about vanishing content, one trend that has emerged in the past year or so is this complete erasure of programming in which shows... Are removed from platforms and just vanish into the ether as part of this whole of tax write-offs. Right? We saw this during the strike with you know shows like FX's Why the Last Man, which had a hell of a journey to even get made and get on the air. To even beloved hits too, like Comedy Central's Inside Amy Schumer. For you as a creative, how much do you worry about that happening to something that you've worked on? I mean, to me, it's like you know, as you were saying, like 15 years ago that you know you would need to have these things on BHS, and that's kind of what's happening again now is buy the physical media if you really love it because you just don't know if it's going to be there in, in a year or six months or tomorrow.
0: No, absolutely. And I hope, you know, the physical media thing
3: is really important. I mean, we there was a little golden area era sort of in the midst of streaming as it was switching over where, you know, the companies realize you can make DVDs really cheap. You know, so there are enlisted DVDs because they can just make them on demand. If someone orders one, they just print it out and send it. And it doesn't cost doesn't cost anything, you know. And I think they've kind of stopped doing that because of streaming. Like I think I looked on Amazon for the enlisted DVDs and I think they're only available used now. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, there's also men of a certain age DVDs. There's also, um, uh, 1600 pen (laughs) DVDs, even though that's not streaming anywhere. Um, so I don't, I mean, you know, they like money. So like figure out if someone's going to buy something, I think if they can, if you're not going to stream it, hopefully make it a download or make it a, um, a physical thing that you can keep without fear of, you know, whatever this thing happened with PlayStation seems sounds crazy, you know, that you like you, you bought stuff, like you think this was games, right? But you, you bought, bought something and then they're like, oh no, we don't own the rights to that anymore. So now you don't have it. Like that's I illegal, right? They, someone should take them to, Court, I hope this court stuff happening, because when you buy something and they tell you you're owning it, you need to own it. And if, if they take it away from you, the, there needs to be obviously just a refund or replace it with something physical.
2: The sad thing is I believe <clears throat> that there are disclaimers in all of these things that it's not permanent, like and just no one pays attention. It's it's all subject to the fickle whims of, uh, of licensing. But yeah, yeah. that's. I, I saw that with PlayStation, and I think it's happened also with Apple uh, with Apple downloads as well, that if the licensing runs out, suddenly things just vanish. And yet that one U2 album that they popped on your iPod will, will be there forever. So, Listen,
1: that's a good record, and people should stop complaining. <laughs>
2: I, I get Leslie to defend that album basically every couple months, and she's very quick to do it every single time.
1: If they're one of my favorite bands, what can I say? And it's a good record.
2: Well, okay, but what what form do you have all of these shows in? What what do you what form do you have sixteen hundred pen in, for example?
3: Well, I've, I, over the past few years, I've gone and bought a bunch of copies of DVDs of any show I've done. I also weasel and you know, what's the well? I'm I'm a weasel, but I weedle, weedle and beg anybody that I work for, please give me DVDs of my own show so that I can, you know show my grandkids, first of all, what a DVD player is, and <laughs> that, you know, I have a house because of this show. Um So, yes, I have my my own copies. Uh I think of pretty much everything. Um Yeah, I'll have to look, but yeah. But not,
2: but not so many copies that you can give them to the neighbor kids on Halloween or anything.
3: No, I'm sure, no, and you can't make copies because it's super, you know... Uh, copy protected but um who knows if we run out of candy one time and i'm very old i you might find me just like here's episode five
1: (laughs) 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 but i mean do you think that this is you know this is our fifth anniversary episode and i love the the perspective that you bring which is why we called you here but what would you say is the biggest change that has impacted the, the tv industry in these past five years is it this fear of of content erasure and i hate to that i'm trying not to use the word content so let me rephrase yeah, is the this okay. fear of programming erasure
3: i don't know if, i don't know if that's the biggest fear i mean that's a very big fear but i think like i said it kind of goes hand in hand with in the old days you'd make shit that no one ever saw again you know uh especially pilots and stuff like that but but if you did one season you might have a really hard time finding any record of that season in any show pre-1990-something, you know? However, the big thing about TV now is that it's turned into the movies, and that sucks. The process is... I'm hopeful that it's changing again, changing back. And then again, with the sort of thing I said about advertising, that we can get into more of a mode of making episodes of television as opposed to this development process that is... nanas it takes forever nobody knows what they want you attach stars and they de- detach and they don't know and they ha- don't don't have a schedule that you can work with you know they, they the the multi 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 levels of executives that are weighing in and you know lack of a mission statement for the network these are all things that make the television development process Like, this is why we do television. I I, I don't know nothing about movies because I like making television. You write something and three weeks later, it can be on television, at least the way it used to be. And now it's gone back. It's gone into this mode where it's like pitch and then wait a bunch of months for the deal to get done and then develop all this material that hasn't been greenlit yet. And I mean, you know, we're talking about years and this is what happens in movies, and, you know, with a movie, that's great. You can, you know, it's a bit of a lottery ticket experience. You can be a screenwriter and obviously have, I've written a, a jillion scripts or been part of writing a jillion scripts that don't make it to the screen. And you're, uh, uh, um, your career, you know, you have a thriving career, even though you've only got one or two things that have made it to the screen. TV wise, that is not what I am used to. I like making things and then seeing them. And that has now, the development process has made that a much dicier proposition and much more like movies. And I really hope we can get back to a mode where we're making things and, you know, making, I mean, uh, whoever would be nostalgic for pilot season. But I do think you forget pilot season, but just making pilots, they're putting so much emphasis into we're greenlighting a series, which means then the development has to be laden with all this pressure and all this extra development, because then they don't want to green light shooting a whole series till they know it's exactly what they want, which of course they can't know because they haven't put anything on the air yet. It's, 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 it's very hard. It's very hard. Obviously there's great shows being made. So it's not to say, you know, they're always going to be great shows being made, but Just take, you know, if you're spending $50 million on the rights to some IP, take $10 million and make five pilots or a half hours cheap. Okay, let's say three pilots. (laughs) I understand. But still take some of that money and just make some lottery tickets so that maybe you make something that's like, oh, we see it now. Once we made a pilot, now we think that should be a series. Um, You know, they don't have to go back to making 20 pilots a year and, and losing a shit ton of money on a million lottery tickets, but uh, it, I think it would behoove everyone to go back to that a little bit. And I, it feels like they are in some way, but...
1: Yeah, even, but, even a hit like Big Bang Theory, they made two pilots, right? Because the first one they recast Penny, right? And then right. all of a sudden they saw, okay, well, here's something that we can change to improve this show. They did that and then wound up with the TV's longest running multi-camera comedy.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it just, it seems financially prudent to be like, here's a a few good ideas. Let's see if they pan out on the screen and not have to put all the money into, do we have a five-year plan or a three-season plan or or, whatever you know, which by the way, they're sinking so much money into development of a season. When you green light a season, these seasons are like eight, 10 episodes. So you're spending three years developing. You don't even have that much programming when you come out the other side, you know? Right, Exactly. So, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, as we talk about streaming, you know, the WGA cracked open the streaming transparency in its newest deal. What hopes do you have over the next, say, five years about how the streamers are going to handle data, In the, you know, in, in this time?
3: Hopes? <laughs> hopes. <laughs> yeah. I hope that they're more transparent for obvious reasons. Um I think they're going to have to be more transparent because of the advertising. I know that they have come up with incredibly creative ways to let the advertisers know what they need to know without revealing the things that maybe writers and actors want to know in order to know if you have leverage to ask for more money, which is, of course, what this is all at the heart of. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I would assume that everyone needs to have a come to Jesus about what a number means. You know, there's all this speculation that they're afraid to show their numbers because they're afraid they'll find people will find out no one's watching, you know, that that's the big secret that no one's watching. But that's not I don't I don't believe that's true. I mean, I believe that hundreds of millions of people are watching stranger things. You know, I believe that there are big gigantic hits out there, it's just quite obvious. And then there are a lot of shows that probably not that many people are watching. But we're just in a world where there's so many more viewing options, so many, so many more. That that's just going to be the reality. So we all have to like just face that. And um, if you know, there's some fear about revealing that you know not as many people. you know, the subscriber number is always going to be an indicator of how popular your service is. You know, so. So I guess, yes, I I think that there's nothing to lose by letting a little more information out there. Um, And I hope that that happens.
1: Yeah. And, you know, before we we wrap, I want to kind of conclude here on a hopeful note. Can you make one prediction for where the TV industry is five years from now?
3: Hmm. I think. Hmm. this prediction and then there's what I hope is going to happen. Look well, give, give us
2: give us both what is <laughs> if we if we have you on for our 10th anniversary <laughs> what are you guessing that we're going to want to be talking to you about then and what are you hoping that we're going to be wanting to talk to you about
3: then. To me so to me it's obvious given the circumstances of the last couple of years that at least a couple of these places are trying to get themselves bought. You know, slimming down, getting rid of debt. You know they they love their mergers. I mean, this is always the you know this is how we're going to provide value to the consumer. Consumer is somehow by merging everything and then controlling everything so that we can raise the prices and give everybody gigantic salaries. That's how we take care of you, the consumer. Like it never works. (laughs) So I both predict that there will be mergers, but I hope that there are attempts at mergers, and I hope that the opposite happens. I hope there's more antitrust. Legislation that comes down the pike and makes independent producers more powerful and creates more opportunities uh, for more people, as opposed to one giant company called Content USA. Well, Content the World, whatever.
2: Yes, Content Global, I believe. Okay, yeah,
3: Global Content USA. This all sounds
2: like a a, a scene from Thirty Rock. Yeah. And just to and just to wrap with our usual wrap up question, what have you been watching
3: and enjoying, Mike? Oh, right. So uh, for all mankind, love it, love it, love it, love it. Um, Julia, really enjoying Julia. I'm really. I haven't been watching it, but I'm looking forward to watching Abbott Elementary coming back. So great. Um, and there's something I'm leaving out that we've been watching. But yeah, that's basically. Those are, the, those are the, the current, that's the current crop.
1: Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming back in to celebrate with us. Couldn't think of a better guest and you were wonderful as always.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: You just finished listening to Mike Royce, who joined us for a reflective look back at many of the hot-button issues of the past year and the past five years. That was recorded on Tuesday, and it was his fifth visit to the podcast.
2: On Wednesday, industry legend Norman Lear died at the age of 101. Lear's career stretched from his role in shaping the broadcast sitcom in the 70s with classics including All in the Family, Sanford and Son, and The Jeffersons, all the way into the streaming age with Netflix's remake of One Day at a Time which, of course, was co-created with Gloria Calderon-Kellett and, yes, Mike Royce. We're grateful to Mike for making his second TV's Top 5 visit this week to talk about the great Norman Lear. Thank you so much for rejoining us, Mike, albeit under... Sadder circumstances than when we spoke two days ago. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: I can't even begin to imagine your loss. We're, we're so sorry for your loss. And, you know, a, as we say, you know, may his memory be a blessing.
3: May his memory be a blessing. I think he's the rare person who's pretty much guaranteed. He's created memories for so many people. He's changed the life of everybody in the country. We changed my life personally, but like America is a different place because of him. And certainly television charted an entirely new path led by him.
1: When was the last time you saw and or spoke with him?
3: I think in person would have been before the strike sometime. You know, Gloria and I did a thing where we were at his house and we recorded some stuff for like an awards show. You know, I started to wonder about his health during the strike because he wasn't coming out and I just figured there would be at least quite sure he wanted to participate even for a few minutes on the picket line. He had a birthday in July and we had a big celebration at the uh, CBS Radford, excuse me, CBS uh, Television City gate. uh, And he, you know, zoomed in and I kind of thought, okay, if he's having to do that For this, you know, maybe he's he's sort of a little bit on the decline. But that was sort of the last time I talked to him in person.
1: As a comedy showrunner, how much credit does Norman deserve for all the ground that he broke decades ago? I mean, you look at the state of TV today and everyone, you know, there's obviously the right says, you know, TV is too woke. And then there's this whole debate. But then you want to make TV that matters and that can affect people, that can change people's minds, which is all stuff Norman Lear paved the way for literally decades ago.
3: Well, yeah, it's, I mean, obviously the word woke has become complete hilarious parody of itself. I mean, nobody even knows what they're saying when they say it. The greatest example is when somebody's like, TV's just woke now, not like Norman Lear stuff. It's like, you mean the most super woke TV? That's what Norman was writing. He was making society aware of so much that either maybe you didn't know about, or you were talking about but never saw on television. And that's, I'm not going to try and define woke, but I mean, talk about like a vanguard of artwork, you know, of portraying something on television. Everybody looked at television up till Norman hit it as safe don't ruffle anybody's feathers. I mean, he talked about this exhaustively. The only problem that was on television was, uh, you know, mom put a roast in the oven and the boss is coming over, and these were the only problems. There was, you know, Playhouse 90. We can obviously point out some some excellent socially aware television, but Norman just broke the whole, you know, he was ahead of all the tech guys. He got in there and he broke things. (laughs) And he made television a completely different place with situation comedy, which is mind boggling when you think about it, that people, were watching all the things he covered in the first season of All in the Family. Everything would be considered a very special episode these days because of the weight of the topics that they tackled.
1: What would you think the state of television would look like today had we all not been fortunate enough to have Norman Lear's many and vast creations?
3: Yeah, that's a good question because you could really take things for granted. Everybody assumes that things are just the way they are, me included. And then you think, well, what if he hadn't come along? Maybe television just would have been some place for just Super sanitized product. <laughs> and I say that word purposefully. If he hadn't come along and basically proven that you can get ratings talking about uncomfortable topics, who knows where it would have gone? You know, I don't know. Maybe somebody else would have come along. But I mean, he shattered the mold so entirely that everybody just followed in his wake. I go all the way up to today because when we did one day at a time, Gloria and I, if we had walked into people's offices pitching a show about a Cuban American family with a single mom. And we're going to maybe do an episode about immigration. And we're going to do a whole arc about someone coming out, which, you know, in the Latino community meant something a little different and was a little more groundbreaking, you know, than maybe some other stories that we saw. We would have been, they just, they would have been smiled and said, thank you. And we never would have sold it. But the moment you go in and say, Hey, I'm here with Norman and we're doing a Norman Lear show. They're like, Oh, we get everything you're doing. Like we want that. We want what he did you know, can you do like even a pale imitation of what he did? Cause we want that. Everybody knows what you're talking about. He set this entire standard for a genre that then we can all just sort of draft off of.
2: Definitely want to talk more about the standard for the genre, but let's go back to the start of one day at a time or the start of your, of your version in particular. First of all, had you had occasion to cross paths with Norman before this?
3: Well, yeah. Weirdly I hosted him. I interviewed him for a SAG panel and I had never met him. I, well, I'd met him very briefly because Phil Rosenthal introduced us and in like we were doing a panel in Aspen and like 20 years before that. But I, I didn't know him, you know, just literally shook his hand. So this was suddenly they needed a host, they needed someone to interview him. Suddenly he's putting this book out and I got to read his whole book and interview him for two hours. So I read his book twice. And I mean, I was sweating because I, I just had to come up with every question I could possibly think of. But I was very proud of myself because there's a story in Maud that came from his childhood, which was, and I'm going to butcher the story, but it was something along the lines of he was on a date, they had two cars and he took the crappy car. And I think his father found him and like let him use the good car. I think I have that right. It's something like that. And it was one of the rare, let's say, nice things that his father did for him that he, it just sticks in his memory. And he put that story in a different way into Maud. And I was like, I bet if I ask him about this, he's going to start crying. <laughs> 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 That'll be a good moment and lo and behold I brought it up and he started telling the actual story much better than I just told it and then he teared up because it was one of his favorite moments in you know in making television. So we had a good time together. But then it was like a year later when they were looking for one day at a time the people to create one day the new one day at a time And I don't know that that factored into it. I was more just a guy who was a veteran showrunner, putting that in heavy quotes, because that just means old person. And then they wanted to pair me up with Gloria. The rest is history. I'm being very pretentious, by the way. I said groundbreaking earlier, and then I'm saying (laughs) history. Please, everybody who's listening, I'm sorry for being pompous. (laughs) (laughs) But
1: but, but this is a groundbreaking show. And you can't talk about Norman Lear without using those words.
3: Yes, Norman, for sure. It's like, we're just using him as like, you know, he just gets you in all the doors and he gets you in people's living rooms. They know it's a Norman Lear show. And then they're like, oh, let me see what this is. You know, they wouldn't turn it on if it was just all the descriptors of the show. So what were your
2: first conversations with him, with Gloria, when you guys were talking about remaking this, sort of what he found important about the show, what you guys found important about the show, and where those things met in the middle, I guess.
3: It was great because we met in his office and Gory and I had not met in person yet. We literally met on the first day of the show, and it was one of those things, I guess, if we had hated each other, we could have gotten out of the deal, but it was a little bit like, okay, I hope we're going to be doing this thing together. I hope we like each other. And we sat in Norman's office and talked for, it must have been like two hours. We talked about the embryonic thoughts we had about the characters and stuff, but also we just talked about, you know, Norman loved to talk about what's going on you know, in the world and how can we work that into the show and what the the issues that he's concerned about. And the big issue that he was concerned about at that moment in 2015 was the VA. He was extremely on top of everything happening at the VA, how veterans were not getting services, wasting all this money and nobody's being taken care of properly. We started joking about it later. He would not let this go with us. He's like, we got to take down the VA. We got to take them down. And, you know, he just meant do a story that shows the problems that are happening there so that hopefully some progress can be made. And lo and behold, Dan Hernandez and Benji Samet wrote fantastic episode, also stylistically Norman, I think Norman-esque, because it was one long, I guess it was two scenes, but basically, you know, she was on hold the whole time at the VA, which was part of the problem is no one's answering the phones. You can't get to the person that you need to get to through the phone tree is a nightmare, or it was anyway, I don't know now. And so it really became an episode that we were super proud of. We were illustrating the issue In a funny way, but in a, you know, also heartfelt and, you know, using our character who was a veteran to show veterans' issues and really doing what Norman wanted to do. How long does it take to get over the holy
2: shit, you're Norman Lear genuflection when you're (laughs) sitting down with him?
3: I would say forever. And also, he has a lack of ego. He loves to create, he just wants to be in that mode. So it doesn't really matter that he's, you know, he's not the kind of guy who like, when I say about the VA you know, and and it's my idea and we got to do it this way. And he was such a fan as he was part of the show because he would come to the table read and he, in every run through and every taping, and he just loved being in it. He loved working with the material, giving notes, thinking about it, seeing it, the fruits of all of our labor. Like he just loved it. During the making of the pilot, we were having a disagreement about one thing. And it was basically that the show opens in Penelope's office and there's a short scene that kind of gets us a lot of information about her character, including that she's a veteran. I think you could say a necessary, I want to say evil, but <laughs> the show, you know, it's a very short scene. I think it goes down easy. And long story short, you need that information. And so Norman, after a while, decided that just he wanted to start in the house. He wanted to start in the apartment. Like that's where the show should start. And theoretically, from a purity standpoint, we all that yes, that would be great to start in the Alvarez's apartment, but it wasn't possible. He kind of made this decision after we shot. So there was no way to sort of put the exposition we had established in the first scene into anywhere into the show. And he really wanted to cut that first scene. And we were like, you know, we get it, but we can't, you know, and he just sort of wouldn't give it up. And at one point I got very impatient. And then suddenly I'm arguing with Norman. Like our voices are going up and we're fucking arguing. (laughs) And of course I had an out-of-body experience because I'm like, how great is my life that I get to argue with Norman Weir? And that was really the one time that that happened. (laughs) I get the feeling that he
2: would have been the kind of person who would have wanted you to argue so are you able to step out of your body enough to go clearly this is a man who enjoys discourse so i'm just kind of giving him what he
3: wants by having discourse with him i don't know if it was that's sort of putting a very good gloss on having a disagreement (laughs) (laughs) he wanted it his way and i wanted it my way and gloria wanted it that way too and but she was a rational human being who uh, didn't raise her voice (laughs) Um, and uh, at one point, it was actually a very wonderful moment because I felt wonderful in retrospect. He called me sweetheart, I think. And it was I suddenly just became a CBS executive in the 70s. Like, I just know that's how he talked to someone, to some dude who was giving him a note that like he didn't like. It was just withering. I was getting angry and then he took it down. He he became less angry to basically win the argument. <laughs>
2: Obviously, you and Gloria were well aware of Norman and his legacy, presumably Justina as well. But this is a show with a lot of young actors, with a lot of kids. What was your sense in the beginning of how aware any of the younger actors were of who they were present
3: with? I mean, I think they certainly did their homework and very quickly... Because Norman was so supportive, we all had this amazing relationship and they looked up to him and knew that they were part of something special because it was his thing, that it wasn't just some sitcom, any other sitcom. I mean, I think they grew to understand this is a special thing because Norman Lear's legacy, you know, we're like part of it now, which is why it was panic inducing to not completely fuck it up, you know, because he could have gotten out of the gate. I mean, he could have just lived his whole life and had all those shows in the 70s and like he did it. And then suddenly he's trying it again. And, you know, we're in the middle of it. So I think they understood that when we were really nailing stuff, they were part of something special because of him.
1: You mentioned Norman's legacy in the seventies and that he could have easily just let it be there, but then he came back with, with your show. And obviously he has a very rich development slate that he leaves behind. But as you talk about Norman Lear and legacy. I'm curious to hear what you think Norman's legacy is.
3: Well, it's that the power of art to communicate something is a real thing. And I know we're sort of in a different world now where TV isn't the only thing that form of mass communication, it's lost its power, it's become diffuse. But you can see the internet, TikTok, anything that becomes a mass communication form, it has an effect, you know, it has an effect if people form opinions and change their lives because of information they're learning. Not always for the better, obviously, but Norman understood that. And I think for better and for worse, the use of comedy to send a message is all him. I'm not saying he's the first one to do it, but he crystallized it for television. And I think sometimes, you know, you hear people say, oh, many a truth is spoken in jest. It's like, yeah, well, many a lie is too. So comedy is a weapon for good and for bad. And, you know, you see comedians now who sometimes people treat them almost like they're telling the truth to a point where you're like, no, they're trying to get laughs. Like that's actually the most important thing. So I guess what I'm saying is like, you know, Norman both got laughs and used it as a force for good. He just unparalleled in making entertainment that was sending a message. No one else did it like him. Nobody.
2: I want to follow on that because I think it's such an important thing because we've been talking for a couple days now paying tribute to him. And so much of it has very justifiably been about the topicality and about the messages and about the ground that was broken. But to me, I feel like it's equally important to remember also the funny of it all because I think that's why people are still watching it and still talking about it talk a bit as much as you can, because it's a tough and kind of ephemeral thing, about the humor that was with the topicality, which is part of why people, for whatever reason, don't think of the shows maybe necessarily as woke or whatever bullshit we're talking about, <laughs> and why there's still the affection and where that affection comes from.
3: Yeah, I think there's a lot going on in that question, but sure. I mean, you, oh, it's, you, a,
2: it's like seven questions at <laughs> once.
3: I understand. <laughs> Trust me. And I will fumble each step of the Perfect. Side. If you look at All in the Family, It's not that it's not dated. It is, obviously. But it still is really hilarious. And Sammy Davis Jr. episode, like the clips that you see of that, the lines that are going back and forth. I mean, these are like gigantic laughs that are happening while you're seeing something take place that hadn't been on television before. I mean, I just heard one of the lines on the radio. Somebody played the clip on the radio. He was saying... Uh, Sorry, this wasn't the Sammy Davis Jr. episode. This is a different episode. They're talking about religion, and he thinks God is white. I don't know if you understand. They made God in my image, and I don't know if you noticed, but I'm white. (laughs) <laughs> Just the myopicness that white people in this case feel. And can you argue that that's not going on today? People like that all over the place. What you can't do is make people understand something. Like, as has been written about many times, there are people who think Archie Bunker is a hero. And that's why Norman wrote a piece last year about how, hey, Donald Trump is like Archie Bunker, and that's not a good thing. We shouldn't be trying to elect Archie Bunker. And so he understood getting all kinds of messages out there you can't necessarily force people to understand them the way you understand them. He never stopped till the very end. Anything that was an issue in society, he wanted to talk about it. He wanted to get his opinion out. He wanted to hear other people's opinions. I think I'm going far afield from the question, but...
1: Yeah, you know, we talked in our last segment about the status of Who's the Boss and that, you know, you're waiting to hear back on if that's going to move forward. But this wasn't one of Norman Lear's original shows, but he is an executive producer on it because it was produced by his former shingle, Embassy. What kind of notes did he have for Who's the Boss? and, And do you still see these same threads of a Norman Lear show in what you guys hope to do?
3: Yeah, I think it's almost like a calibration thing. You know, when you do a Norman show at the baseline is going to be relatable. It may or may not be political. And there's sort of varying degrees of how political it can be. We're not doing the show yet. So we've written a couple of episodes that are setting up this family and illustrating the issues that exist between them, between these characters. I mean, Alyssa Milano is a activist who I'm sure will want to do some stories about stuff that concerns her. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, we'll have to find out as we go forward, but there's always room to do stuff. Like using one day at a time as an example, we always said when we were talking with Norman about it, it's never going to be all in the family, let's say, which is over here on the spectrum in terms of very political and very controversial and lots of hot button stuff. But it's also not silver spoons. It's somewhere in between. And our sort of guiding light or the way we tried to position the show and think about it was if there's an issue that exists that's ripped from the headlines that also our characters are going through then that's something to talk about what we're not going to do is like there's an issue that's on the front page. Is how do we fit it in how do we have a discussion about it in our show we want to make sure it's coming from the characters lives and so one day at a time sometimes you could see oh this is a real hot button issue that they're talking about and sometimes it was just family dynamics you know but we had built up the character so those shows became meaningful too because we're invested in their happiness and the emotions and we did a lot of drama within the comedy so i think who's the boss will use that as you know i think who's the boss might be somewhere i'm not gonna say closer to silver spoons but maybe a little bit farther from all in the family. But I also think it's completely up to how it just evolves, which we don't know yet. So, one of the things about
2: Norman's longevity was that basically anytime Norman entered a room, it became an impromptu tribute to Norman <laughs> Lear to some degree. And over the years, you got to be on many, many panels with him. Sort of two questions more direct than the last rambling question. What was it like being? a part of one of those Norman Lear tributes. And did you have any sense of how he felt about being in the
3: Norman Lear tribute business? (laughs) I think he enjoyed using it for his own purposes. I mean, every time I saw him on a panel, I could not believe how sharp he was I would have been at his age, which I, you know I got to know him when he was ninety-five. I think so. You know, ninety-five to hundred were the years we were really doing stuff together. And I can't just the fear if I was that age to be in front of people. And he didn't have it. And not only did he not have it, but I mean, I saw something. I think it was at Ted Sarando's house and like a big, I can't remember, big panel. And Judd Apatow was interviewing him. I mean, Norman just holding forth, like delivering all these incredible like bits of wisdom and like very up to date with stuff that's going on in the news and politics. And, you know, even that piece that he wrote that I mentioned, it was just super insightful. And so I think he didn't it's like whatever gets me attention to be able to, like, say the things I want to say. Great. He wasn't looking for people to fawn over him, you know, (laughs) he just like he certainly enjoyed the spotlight and he used it. For his own purposes.
1: Yeah. Wrapping up here, but before you started working with Norman, did you have a defining and or maybe favorite Norman Lear show?
3: I guess for me, it was probably All in the Family. I remember that I was not allowed to watch it because I was too young. I have a vague memory of sort of like listening in on some of the shows because I wasn't allowed to watch it. Then later when it was in syndication, I did watch it because I think there was probably no preventing me, even though I was probably still too young. I mean, it was like nothing you'd ever seen before. I was, in the beginning, too young to sort of understand why it was groundbreaking. But then you saw after it, it's like, well, there's no other shows like this except the other shows that this guy does. And then I think got a, it was such a flood of Norman Lear shows that you got used to, like, I guess this is just the way television is now. Jim Brooks was the other sort of party that had all the shows, and they were different, but what a era for comedy. I mean, it was the perfect synthesis of what a sitcom is which is a stage play that is filmed in a way that makes it gives it a little more Of a that uses close ups to make it a different thing. And we've gotten away from that because I guess it feels old timey. And there's so many sitcoms now because of money that they shoot not with an audience and they do a lot of block and shoot stuff. Obviously, a a plague of putting in laughter where, you know, maybe there shouldn't be laughter. And when you see those shows, you know, All in the Family in particular that I remember, it's like the laugh, the the experience that the audience is going through is equal to what you're going through at home. And I think these days, what you really have to guard against. Against with a sitcom is you feel like there's something going on on this. People are like, why are they laughing? I'm, I'm not laughing. Why are they laughing? And we've got to get back to not that. <laughs> we've got to make sure that the party going on on the screen is the same or some, something similar to the party
1: going on at home.
3: So anyway, All in the Family just was, you still watch it today. You're like, holy shit. Wow. So funny.
1: Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you again for being so generous with your time all week this week. We really appreciate it.
3: My pleasure. I'm glad someone wants to listen to me. So thank you.
0: Number five.
1: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, well, it's slim pickings this week for new releases. You've got My Life with the Walter Boys on Netflix, Mr. Monk's Last Case, a monk movie on Peacock, and whatever Culprits is on Hulu. Dan, what you got?
2: I'm going to at least explain what Culprits is on Hulu. Uh, No, this is... (laughs) this may be the thinnest week since we started doing this, or at least the thinnest week that didn't have the excuse of, I don't know, God only knows what excuses. This week is bad. This is an awful week for new TV. Fortunately, things actually pick up quite a bit in the next couple weeks. So this is just a strange blip in the middle of December where for some reason nobody wanted to plant their flag on a particular week. I I don't really know why. Of course, if you are a Monk fan, then Monk's Last Case, a Monk movie on Peacock will make you very happy. I just happen to have stopped watching Monk fairly early on in its run, and so that one just was not a thing that... Excited me particularly So that meant that most of what I was watching And writing for this week Was about stuff that absolutely probably has a niche audience but is not a huge audience so you didn't even mention Britbox's Archie which premiered earlier this week Archie in this case refers to Archibald Leach which who fans of classic Hollywood cinema will know it was the birth name of Cary Grant so it is a four-part biography of sorts of Cary Grant featuring the great Jason Isaacs as the legendary North by Northwest star it is based at least in some part on Diane Cannon's memoir about her marriage to Cary Grant and other aspects of her life. And Laura Aikman plays Diane Cannon, and she's one of basically three people who are kind of regular parts of this. There's also Harriet Walter as Elsie Leach, Cary Grant's mentally disturbed mother. It's okay. It's not it's it's not bad. It's sort of a laundry list kind of biopic when it really doesn't need to be. Like, if if they had just decided to make a two-hour movie about the May-December love story between Cary Grant and Diane Cannon with little bits of biographical detail interspersed, it probably would have been perfectly fine. Instead, you have a, let's kind of go through random aspects of Cary Grant's life, but also skip most of the movies that anybody cares about. We're going to make a couple very, very coy references to the fact that he lived for a decade with random. Randolph Scott, and for years, many people have speculated about the nature of their relationship. Definitely Jennifer Grant, Cary Grant's uh, daughter, who is featured here and also an executive producer, along with Diane Cannon, uh, sued somebody for making a joke about Cary Grant being gay and I'm certainly not saying that. I just know that it's a part of his life that interests people and that people make references but don't really address in any meaningful way here. There's a lot of jumping around in time. There's a lot of kind of questionable makeup. When Cary Grant is in his 80s and Jason Isaac is playing him, Isaac explained is him. To me, it looked much more like it was a Peter Sellers character playing Cary Grant than anything like Cary Grant, but but Jason Isaacs is good, and, and actually I think that Laura Aikman is, is really excellent as Diane Cannon. She's the only person in the movie who I went, ooh, she looks a lot like the person she's playing, so kudos for that. There are a lot of guest appearances by people playing Alfred Hitchcock, Doris Day, George Burns. None of them are very good, but if you are a devotee of this period and this particular actor, who obviously is a legend, there, there are good things here, and while it is four episodes, they are four episodes of roughly forty-five minutes apiece. So it's it's relatively painless, but it could have and should have been much better. Uh, Leslie mentioned *Culprits* on Hulu, in the context where she was like, "I have no idea what *Culprits* on Hulu is." So let me tell you, it is a heist drama that is created by Jay Blakeson, who most recently directed the healthcare satire. I care a lot, which ultimately, whatever significance it has, it's significant because pff, Rosamund Pike won a very strange Golden Globe Award for it. So that's the nature of its visibility. Culprits is an eight episode heist drama that's a lot like many heist dramas you've seen. All of the people involved in the heist have fun and playful code names that relate to what they do on the team. So there's muscle and brain and specialist. And Driver and other things, basically they're hitting a vault that's packed with money, but potentially also other things, and not surprisingly, things go poorly with the heist, and then things go even worse three years later when somebody is killing the people associated with the heist. It's a a very good cast of people who, in many cases, are people who I figured probably should have been stars long ago. Gemma Arterton has had a number of of star-type vehicles. I've always thought she was a better actor and a more interesting actor than anything she's been given to do. She plays brain kind of the criminal mastermind behind things really the star of the series is nathan stewart jarrett who was in generation on max he was also in misfits he was one of my favorite parts of misfits he's actually really excellent here playing muscle playing the sort of muscle in in this particular heist he's very very good kirby howell baptiste who also has been in many things and is just a lot of fun. She plays kind of a con artist uh, whose nickname is Officer for reasons that aren't wholly clear. As part of the heist, she dresses like an officer, but that's not really her capacity within the heist. So anyway, whatever, who cares? For five episodes, it's very much by the numbers, but it's reasonably entertaining. In the last two or three episodes, though, to me, it became wildly overstuffed with cliches, very, very, very visible. Yes, I've seen a heist movie before, cliches. And then the last couple episodes, there's an attempt to give thematic resonance to it by underlining the Robin Hood aspects of the heist genre, which that's an aspect of every heist genre. It's very, very, very proud of itself, though, for coming up with the idea that it's about people taking money from the rich as if this is a revelation that somebody had. So maybe you will watch the first five episodes and the momentum of it will be sufficient to carry you through the end. I watched all eight, of course. That's what I do. It's my job. And I I ran out of much interest or enthusiasm for it towards the end, to be sure. Okay, so I said I watched every episode of it as if I would watch every episode of everything. I watched two episodes of My Life with the Walter Boys, which our colleague Angie reviewed, and two episodes was all that I could watch of My Life with the Walter Boys. It has the unfortunate problem of being at an intersection of being unambiguously awful and being unambiguously not made for me. So it's both of those two things. There's no circumstance in which this particular kind of half-wholesome family drama was really going to be my kind of thing unless it was good. And it's very much not good. It's horribly written. It's even more horribly cast. Like, if you have an ensemble and you can't find enough people... (laughs) to be in your ensemble who have TV star charisma, you just don't make the show. And some of the people here, like some of these actors, let me give the basics for people who care and then we can move on with our lives. It's the story of a girl named Jackie played by Nikki Rodriguez from New York City. She's the daughter of a fashion designer or something and her parents and her sister die in a tragic car accident and she moves to Colorado to live with the people who are her guardian for guardians for really strange and tenuous reasons like her mother's best friend from college who she had no interactions with over decades I don't know whatever she for whatever reason Jackie arrives in Colorado at the very, very lavish ranch that the family lives in and is shocked to discover that the family has like 10 kids who just keep coming out of the woodwork, but none of them have distinctive personalities. Several of them are played by actors who look like they're in their mid-30s or their 40s. Like one of them has a receding hairline, like he's more convincing as Alfred Hitchcock than the actor who played Alfred Hitchcock in Archie. And the entire plot of it is that she's racked with guilt She moves in with this family full of hunky boys. She's basically adopted by them. So these are basically her surrogate siblings. And then it becomes an ongoing question of which of the boys she's going to end up hooking up with. And like after two episodes of going ew, stop it, Ooh, stop it, Ooh, stop it. And at no point finding anything that was actually happening in the series to be either funny or the least bit emotionally resonant, I just said, I don't know why I would even consider watching another episode of this. It's awful, and it's awful in a thoroughly bland and forgettable way. And if memory serves from previous conversations, Leslie Goldberg, you watched all of it.
1: I did. <laughs> I can't help it, man. (laughs) Yes, you can. You very much can help it. Explain. I'm a sucker. I love all these like young adult shows. And this one, you know, it's like, I admittedly, I love The Summer I Turned Pretty. I think it's so cute, even though parts of it are absolutely terrible. and, And these kids make the worst decisions on the planet. But this kind of fulfilled that itch to scratch. You know what I mean? Like I needed another new young adult show to watch. This one, it was not very good. I agree, Dan, not that I'm a critic, but it's, you know what, when you want to watch a certain kind of programming and there's this thing sitting right in front of you, sure. Did I focus entirely on it? No. Did I have it on in the background while I was doing other things?
2: Absolutely. And I think it will find an audience because I think it kind of is absolutely.
1: Yeah, it will definitely find an audience, but it's also like, just go watch The Summer I Turned Pretty instead.
2: The Summer I Turned Pretty is a solid show and it's a well cast show. I don't think it's a perfect show but it's a show that gives evidence of a voice from the person writing it, personality from the actors starring in it. It's a much better show. Even Outer Banks, which I think is a total mess of a show, but which this you reminded me do of. Do
1: not talk poorly about Outer Banks. <laughs>
2: Outer Banks is a masterpiece compared there, to this. There you are. And Outer Banks is not a masterpiece, but also you've got a sort of wholesome, small-towny Colorado thing, which means that lots of people are going to watch this thinking, please be a little bit more like Everwood, and oh dear God, is it not on the level of Everwood. It's like, oh Wow. I, yeah. Anyway, because Angie was reviewing it, I thankfully did not have to watch more. I don't even remember what I watched instead last night after deciding I had no interest at all in watching a third episode. I just said two episodes of this is at least one episode too many of this. Yeah. Honestly, there's no clear winner this week. My life with the Walter boys is awful, but people will find it appealing in a, in a bad comfort food way. Archie is not great but Jason Isaacs is good and so you know Hollywood fun whatever you can get something out of it and culprits I thought ended very poorly so that means that you're tuning in for an eight episode heist series which has an unsatisfying conclusion but at least it's a heist series and it's got a good cast so yeah rough week Leslie rough week
1: yeah just watch MLB Network because you know Juan Soto's a Yankee things are heating up where's Shohei Otani gonna sign Dodgers,
2: Dodgers, 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 Or tune in on Saturday to watch the Heisman Trophy presentation on ESPN. There are other things to do this weekend. And also, as I already said, next week is a much better week. Next week, there's season two of, of Jack Reacher. There's what else is next week? There, there are other things next week. The crown the comes finals, back.
1: Yeah, the final part of the crown. Yeah,
2: Various documentary series uh, next week, I believe, or at, just after next week, the end of the Archer. Yeah. Next week is a much better week this week for whatever reason was simply a crater, and we survived it, so yay.
1: For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, that's right, there's more. Be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporters. Now see this newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's top five, The Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. Be
2: sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing, because those suckers help spread the word of out, come say hi to us on the social medias. She's consistently at Snoodit with two O's. I'm always at the fine print, F-I-E-N, print. If you have questions, though, for future mailbag segments, maybe in the new year we'll get back to a mailbag segment. I feel like next week, unlikely, but, you know, whatever. You never know. You can email us at Top 5 at THR.com. That's Top 5 the numeral 5, at THR.com. Happy Hanukkah, and until next week, Leslie.
1: Happy Hanukkah, Dan. Until next week.